Welcome to Tribal Malfunctions, a story of love, greed, trust, betrayal, and the power of independent trucking set in 22nd century Boston. Please join us now as we continue our investigation into the world of Tribal Malfunctions. Episode 9 of Tribal My Functions, my cyberpunk novel set in 22nd century Boston. Uh, it is written by me, Chang Tuhyun, and read by me, Chang Tuhyun. Apologize if I sound a little out of breath. I did run up uh, 14 flights of stairs here just a moment ago as the uh, elevators are broken here at uh, Dynamax Studios Incorporated. So, I wanted to make sure I could run up and uh, deliver the podcast to you. And hope you're doing well. Episode 9. Wow, I really can't believe we're here in some ways. Um, I began this little thing just messing around. Wanted to share the story with some people, and uh, here we are. I think we may have gained a listener or two. Who knows? Anyway, um, things are moving along. If you haven't... um, listen to the previous eight episodes, here's a chance for you right now to do so. Okay, bet you're all caught up. Uh, that was, what, nine hours or something on the reading, so good work, or listening, rather. Um, so good on you. As always, a little uh, um, caveat, disclaimer at the beginning. Um... There's cussing, because in the future, people swear. All the music is uh, written by me, Chang Terhun, um, as my musical alter ego, Cathode Ray Tube. And uh, if you like that, you can get it all through my website, um, which is charlesrterhune.com. That's what my mommy calls me. You can also get it, um, some of the stuff from the website, um, componentrecordings.bandcamp.com. That is... The record label some of my stuff is on component has a lot of really cool stuff so if you like my stuff there will definitely be some other um, very cool stuff on there as well that I hope you'll check out so yeah component recordings bandcamp.com I also have some other stuff of my own most of my stuff is actually hosted on um, the real cathode ray tube bandcamp.com again that is the real cathode ray tube bandcamp.com and I hope you dig that stuff as well. A lot of good things there. Not sure what else is going on. Um, the story unfolds and gets deeper as it uh, does, as any good story does. I hope you think this is a good story. I happen to. Granted, I'm a little biased because I tend to wear the pants and shoes of the guy who wrote it. But um, what does that mean? That just means I like wearing my own clothes. So, um, yeah, I guess that's it. Without further ado, let us go into... Episode 9, Chapter 9 of Tribal Malfunctions. Log 9, Chalk Full of Mercenaries. The rise of gangs in the late 20th and early 21st century is attributed to many things. While gangs have long been a factor in civilization, for as long as there have been humans, there have been humans gathering together under various united fronts and ideologies, the groups arising in the modern age, particularly in America, are unique in their pageantry and vivid display. Despite the increased blending of futures and nationalities, 
For each ethnic group, there exists a dominant gang within its own specific areas of control, occupation, and agenda. Los Malaguas occupies the traditionally Italian stronghold of East Boston and has since the late 20th century. Kill or Be Killed dominates much of West Roxbury and significant parts of East Somerville, East Boston, Chelsea, Lynn, and Revere. M225 is mostly made up of Latino and Hispanic members and is usually found in parts of Alston, Roxbury, Chelsea, Somerville, and Lynn. The largely Asian and Pacific Islander heavy boys, though mostly gone since their climactic battle in 2104, were dominant in Boston's Back Bay, South End, Dorchester, and Somerville. One can see from the spread of each gang that there was a great deal of overlap, which resulted in frequent battles over territory, influence, and activities in each area. The battles were often bloody, legendary, and rivaled gangland-era fights as each group fought for territories. The crackdown on modern gangs, which began with the infamous Big Battelle in 2104 and led to the all-but-total extinction of heavy boys, helped curb gang activities for just about 10 years. The people of Boston found some peace in this time, despite there being a regular level of crime in the city and its outer reaches. But a recent upswing in activity and a resurgence of some of the more infamous gangs has gotten some citizens concerned there's a replay of the old days on the horizon. Some are calling for a resumed crackdown on gangs again, following the appearance of heavy boys in the outskirts of Metro Boston. In this episode of For the Record, we'll delve into the history of gangs in Boston, from its days as a colonial city through the Mafia years and into more recent history. Stay with us, won't you? Now here's some words from our sponsors. For the Record, broadcast on January 19th, 2113. Chapter 9, Tribal Malfunctions. The following morning, after boarding the 9.35 a.m. Nor'easter out of South Station, bound for New York, Aris thought about how he was never too close to his sister Anna Maria. This was mostly due to their age difference. He always wondered how his mother managed to avoid getting pregnant with him for so long, considering the tower they lived in was nicknamed the Rabbit Warren. With eight years between them, those might as well have been eight decades. By the time he was old enough to be aware of his surroundings, Anna Maria was already a teenager. Maturing into a thick, curvaceous body at a very young age, she was out getting into trouble when he was still in grade school. By the time he hit middle school, she was in the army. Ara struggled to remember exactly when he'd last seen her, and realized it may have been a few days before she left for good. He was on his way to school, or at least the appearance of going to school. Anna Maria and their mother sat at the tiny kitchen table in the even tinier galley kitchen. His mother held a cigarette in her hand, a coffee mug before her. Anna Maria clutched her usual morning protein shake like a weapon. Leaning away from cigarette smoke, the aged wall filter struggled to remove. Both Anna Maria and Aris looked more like their father than their mother, a fact that annoyed and saddened her more and more after his death. Aris' mother was developing the leathery skin tone common to someone with a regular smoking, drinking, and tanning bed habit. These two women, the most important ones in his life at that time, spoke tersely to each other, ramping up to another explosive argument. He'd given up intervening and often hidden his room or fled the apartment altogether. That morning, Ara saw one coming like the black storm clouds that rolled into the harbor during hurricane season. He shouted, bye, in their direction, and left in a hurry to make first bell at school, then ditch for the all base he apprenticed at. Now here he was, almost 20 years later, about to enter New York, the city of his enemies, where he'd reunite with Anna Maria to attend the funeral of his long estranged mother. He pushed the sandwich and beer he'd purchased from the dining car to the side of the seat tray 
before unrolling his tablet from his coat pocket. After taking one last look at the New England coast speeding by, Aris started poring over the data he'd lifted from Yukikor 4291. The obsession was firmly in his mind most waking hours these days. Breaking into the hauler was the first sign of an intent to solve its mystery. He was unsure of what the link was to the thugs he saw in the Ortiz building, but he knew there was one. Before boarding the train, he considered taking another look at the Ortiz building due to its close proximity to the train station, but managed to deny himself that indulgence. Instead, he peered at the pictures he took of the Ortiz Center months before, but the resolution was too low to determine if those crates were the same as the ones he'd found in the hauler. But he was still certain of it. The data didn't bring much clarity and instead only added confusion with new revelations, which sprung off more scenarios and variables than a microfiber leak inside a brake shaft. Hero, the AI, was a complete enigma and absolutely useless on a hauler where most actions were controlled by the CBTS. The Central Bureau of Transportation and Shipping oversaw all Wormway traffic from their massive central headquarters just outside of Chicago. At any given time, CBTS oversaw 100,000 vehicles moving through its tunnels at high speed. So really, the only brains a hauler needed were for self-diagnosis, cargo inventory, and emergency procedures. By looking closer at what he pulled from its logs, Aris saw that Hero didn't use any higher functions during transit. Aris wasn't even sure the AI was conscious during those trips, both from what it said and from what the monitoring systems indicated. Hero said he went to sleep during the trips, which was clear from a lack of CPU activity during transit. It looked like the normal automatic functions of any hauler that came through his shop for normal repairs. Yet the CPU of Yukikor 4291 was a sentient AI with verbal and visual interface capabilities that were useless for 99% of its work. The way he saw it, Hero was almost like a toy added to the hauler as a joke, perhaps. Maybe someone at Yukikor Dispatch put it there to relieve boredom or some other tedium. Even though Aris had no idea of its actual specs, he could tell from the brief conversation he had with it that Hero had the intelligence and persona of a small child. He'd seen similar things in toy stores. High-end robots made to act like real children that would never cry, shit, or eat. They were more like toy animals, robotic pets. Not that he enjoyed the base human functions of his children, nor when they were badly behaved, but in these childlike automatons, it was nothing less than creepy. He remembered Ole Palme, a craggy Norwegian mechanic that retired a few years after Ara started working at Holy Roller. Ole had a favorite saying when something didn't meet his standard of simplicity and streamlined efficiency. Like teats on a goose, Ole would say, cackling through the demolished fence of teeth he still wore in a mouth stained by cigarettes and the weird, bitter Dutch licorice drops he offered that no one ever accepted more than once. Aris looked over detailed entry logs that accounted for every millisecond of Yukikor 4291's journey to and from its destination in the Wormway. Haller's simplicity was also its greatest asset. A hundred years ago, most freight that was hauled overland, which wasn't loaded on a train, was driven in a truck by a human. That human was subject to the rigors of the road, plus hunger, fatigue, and every other human bodily function while it worked. Aris shook his head, thinking how hard it must have been trying to get anything delivered by truck. The logistics were a nightmare he barely cared to contemplate. Once the wormway was built and auto haulers were put into regular use, accidents dropped by 89% while delivery speed increased by 64 to 75 percent. The Wormway itself was an engineering marvel that eliminated not only human error in transporting goods, but removed the greatest impediment to transport which dogged humanity for millennia, weather. By running underground, the haulers never encountered rain, snow, 
cold or heat that stopped all service travel. The tunnels ran not only across continents, but between them, inflexible underwater tunnels suspended by a complex system of weights and floats. At that depth, storms didn't affect them, nor did seismic events, as the tunnels moved almost like enormous snakes across wide channels in the water without disruption in service. Another way auto haulers revolutionized modern travel was by running on maglev rails powered by geothermal fusion or solar power. They were fast, cheap, and safe. The train he rode in was cousin to an auto hauler, except it was manned by a human crew working in tandem with an AI persona to navigate the surface rails. Deep below them, auto haulers ran by themselves day and night at dizzying speeds along two sets of rails with another one for emergency use. Tunnels repaired themselves with robotic crews and nanobots for microscopic bulkhead repairs. Only a worst case scenario, earthquake, fires, and floods, might require human supervision for repairs. Most humans found the idea of traveling so deep in the earth disconcerting, though Aris didn't mind this at all. He knew how safe haulers were and that accidents down in the tunnels were almost unheard of. Fortunately, there were just enough accidents to keep him in business, along with repairing worn parts on a hauler. But neither accident nor wear and tear accounted for Yuki Core 4291's consistently odd breakdowns. Despite spending a half hour on it, during which he barely noticed the train's slow decrease in speed as it approached New York City's outskirts just past the Connecticut border, he found nothing in the data that indicated Yukikor 4291 was a lemon or severely accident-prone hauler. His final conclusion was that the data confirmed it was being regularly tampered with somewhere along its delivery route. But why and where? He set the program to filter out normal behavior and look for anomalous gaps in the log, indicating human tampering or an unscheduled stop somewhere. As it compiled the data, he looked outside the window again. So this is the mighty NYC, he thought. He'd seen it in pictures and movies, but up close, it was something else. Wealthy suburbs with trees alternated with desolate stretches in various stages of urban renewal and decay cycles. Much like the area around Boston, especially Somerville, Charlestown, and East Boston. The only exception was a massive, continuous sprawl beginning roughly 30 miles outside the city that ended only when the darkness of a tunnel swallowed the train. Before then, it was tall buildings, small buildings, and more buildings interspersed with bridges over murky rivers and glimpses of people on the sidewalk bundled up against the cold. He looked at the other passengers, hoping he wasn't too obvious. No obvious sign of heavy boys, though he knew they were here. No one looked exactly down and heavy, but as he knew from experience, you concealed yourself in public unless you were representing the all-base or defending territory. Nowadays, in Boston, no one would wear their cut and colors in public unless they wanted trouble from the police right away. In that light, the train appeared to be filled with citizens traveling for work or play or something in between. Anyone with at least one eye or ear knew the NYC crews had trounced the Boston crews back in the day. Fifteen years later, and they'd never really recovered. NYC supposedly left after splintering Boston's heavy boys, leaving a vacuum in which numerous smaller groups fought for scraps in the wake. Between the police crackdown on all gangs, not just heavy boys, and lingering damage of that defeat, no one had risen to supremacy after the Big Battelle. Aris realized he was thinking small, applying his Boston thinking to NYC gangs. Who knew what the deal was here? Maybe they could go out in full kit and cut without getting harassed by cops. The thought made him feel like more of a rube than before as his tablet buzzed to let him know it was done compiling. He scanned the report carefully, finding weird anomalies straight away. A corrupted entry from just outside Hartford, and another entering Boston, then a few more as it left the country near free Canadian territory. 
The log search also revealed the route Yukikor 4291 took was just as weird and winding as Tiny Town predicted. It routinely journeyed between New York and Free Canada, or out to California, up the Pacific coast, into the Canadian Commonwealth, with occasional runs to the border of Free Canada at the Ottawa hub. There it would return to the U.S. and its home base in New York. A journey like that in itself wasn't odd. Haulers went wherever their cargo needed to go. It was the irregular deviations into both Canadas, the Commonwealth of Canada, which was still a member of the British Commonwealth, while Free Canada became a sovereign nation after its violent secession Quebecois in 2082, which Aris found odd. Added to this were corrupted entries, as if someone were trying to cover their tracks. So why? Aris said too loud, then looked to see if anyone was staring. But no one seemed interested. In fact, the other passengers rose as if alerted by an unheard signal, preparing to disembark the train. The dark tunnel outside gave no indication they were at Penn Station. Perhaps these were frequent travelers, while Aris felt like a country farmer seeing ancient Rome for the first time. He tried to puff himself up a bit. When he was down and heavy, that would have been no problem. He traveled in his gear, carrying two or three ceramic knives. But as a civilian and a former Boston heavy boy behind enemy lines, he now felt tiny. A flashing series of passing lights offered glimpses into dimly lit crevices and service doors as the train silently glided into Penn Station. Aris rose with the others and followed the line out the door while the automated voice overhead blared announcements. Stepping out of the train, he smiled. Even as someone who never particularly noticed architecture, Penn Station made him gawk at its vintage architecture constructed with contemporary materials. This new Penn Station was a replica rebuilt with hefty donations from wealthy citizens and the city. The original was built in the early 20th century, then torn down in favor of a simpler modern design some 60 years later. After over a century lamenting the loss of the original structure, this reconstruction was hailed as a marvel of architecture ever since. Aris called up his sister's directions and followed signs to a cab stand on 42nd Street. He noted the signs offering human or automated drivers and opted for the latter. A clean, yellow cab then pulled up. Welcome to New York City, Mr. Aguilar. The persona greeted him as he entered. Aris grunted, annoyed he'd forgotten to turn on his personal privacy settings on his ID. As the onslaught began, from sniffers detecting an open channel and then directing hundreds of ads for food, porn, and a mixture of both at him, he switched them off with a squeeze of his wallet. Where may I take you? The cab asked. Governor's Island, he replied. Thank you, said the cab, sliding into traffic. Aris leaned back and stared out the window awestruck by the city. The sheer number of people on the streets and in vehicles was incredible. While police and emergency vehicles flew overhead, ground-based hover cars floated inches above the surface. Buildings towered overhead, blocking only blinding shafts of sunlight sneaking past and hitting the streets in random places. Despite turning his privacy filters on, he was continually assaulted by a barrage of advertisements for a number of things. Food, tours, electronics, plays, movies, and a number of sex trades. These ads floating before his eyes made him wave involuntarily, then reach for his wallet again to shut out all but the illegal ones, which maneuvered past his personal space firewall. They continued south along Broadway, until eventually the cab took an underground tunnel with the flow of numerous cars driven by humans and other self-guiding vehicles. Exiting the tunnel, he could see the bitter cold blue sky in a clear valley of skyscrapers on either side. Eventually, this opened into a wide space with snow-covered parks and two ferry terminals at the edge of the harbor where his cab pulled into the passenger drop-off zone, then stopped. Governor's Island, said the persona. Civilian vehicles are not allowed beyond this point. Wait, what? said Aris. You may ask inside the ferry terminal about passage to the island. 
Aris, annoyed that his sister left out this key detail of his journey, tapped his coat twice above his wallet to pay, then got out. Enjoy your visit to New York City, said the cab, before it slid away into traffic again. Aris frowned, then turned to the terminal entrance. The Staten Island Ferry Terminal, a few yards to his right, bustled with civilians coming and going. The Governor's Island Terminal didn't. Two fully armed soldiers, each a head taller than him, stood stock still by the entrance, while a pair of blue warbots paced warily at the curbside. A guard tower rose overhead, looming above the terminal area, while drones bearing stars and stripes floated overhead, bulky and watchful. Aris took a breath and stepped towards the entrance. The warbots paused, watching him with numerous camera eyes, seen and not seen, as if they were birds of prey and he was a mouse. Before he got within ten feet of the doors, one of the soldiers stepped forward and spoke. Aristotle Aguilar, he said, loud enough to stop Aris in his tracks. He reflectively reached for his wallet, but stopped his hand outside his coat, realizing they might mistake this as reaching for a weapon. Uh, yeah, he said. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, that's me, uh, sir. Step right this way, please, said the other soldier. The door opened between them on a featureless white corridor. Aris walked in, hearing the doors close behind him. He turned to see another pair of soldiers stationed just inside the doors. Please proceed forward, sir, one of them said, nodding at the corridor's terminus. Aris did as he was told. As he walked, a line of light swept under him in pace with his gait. He felt the hair on the back of his neck stand up as a faint whine tickled his ears. At the far end, doors opened up into a wider corridor where two uniformed soldiers stood behind diamond pane glass. One watched him while the other kept her eyes on her monitor. Please walk to the end of the reception hall, Mr. Agalon, someone said. The voice carried on the whine in his ears. Aris nodded, noticing as he walked the American, New York State, and armed forces flags hanging on either side of the hall. The tickling at the back of his neck was worse now as the high-pitched whine began to dig past his ears into the roots of his teeth. Mercifully, it stopped at the end of the hall as the light under his feet dimmed, then disappeared. Aris shook his head, which did little to remove the sensation of pressure on his eardrums. Doors opened next to the window, and two more armed guards and a female soldier in a black beret emerged. Mr. Aguilar, I'm Sergeant Pleasance. Please come this way, the woman said, smiling as she waved at a table with two plastic bins on top of it. Everyone get this special treatment, he asked, regretting the words as they left his mouth. The woman smiled. No, sir, she said. She had red hair and pale skin. Just special guests. Empty your pockets, then step through, please. Aris tensed, wondering if they'd check his tablet and see the hauler data there. Still, he did as he was told, emptying his pockets into one of the bins. The woman smiled, slid the bin onto a slow-moving conveyor belt, running into a boxy machine. Then she waved him through a circular metal portal with a ring of pale blue lights on the inside. He passed through this without incident, and when his belongings appeared on the other side of the box, he gathered them up again. All that's pretty old school, he said. Metal detectors and x-ray machines? Indeed, she replied. But we had an inventory of everything on your person before you stepped inside, including the ceramic blade inside your left armpit. Ara swallowed, expecting to feel hands on his arms as he was thrown into a waiting cell. Please follow me, she said, smiling. She wore no ID tags, but several medals and ranking badges decorated the left breast of her jacket. Shuttles right this way. They proceeded through a short series of corridors, walled with smoked glass under a mirrored ceiling. At the end of the third turn, they entered the cramped airlock of a gray shuttle with military markings. Uh, we're leaving the planet? Arist asked, stopping just inside. No, sir, we're not, said the woman. We're heading to the island to see Colonel Agalon. She thought the boat launch might be a little cold for you. Oh, he said. Uh, okay, that's nice of her, I guess. 
Pleasance waved him to a small cabin with five seats on a side. She sat up front, greeting the pilot by name, who returned this with a wave. Aris took a seat on the opposite side of the aisle. The shuttle rose, and they went skittering off a few meters above the water. Aris leaned forward to see the shore on either side. I'd be happy to point out any landmarks to you, said Pleasance. No, that's okay, he said. I'm fine. First time in the city, she asked. Yes, he said. Uh, ma'am. She laughed. Appreciate the manners, but you're not military. No need to address me formally, she said. Oh, okay, he said. Sorry, I, I just didn't expect all this. He gestured at the shuttle ceiling. How come you didn't take my blade? Because no one thinks you're dumb enough to use it here, she said, shrugging, then smiling. The colonel told us you'd come in caring, but wouldn't use it unless aggressively provoked. The colonel, he said. Yes. Your sister didn't tell you she was in the service, said the officer. No, ma- uh, no, she did not. Huh, I see, said Pleasance, nodding slightly and smiling. I suppose she wanted to surprise or maybe impress you. Yeah, maybe, he replied. More like fuck with me, he thought. They arrived at the island in less than three minutes. When the shuttle slipped onto a landing pad, Aris barely felt the bump of the struts on the ground. Pleasance rose and led him out. For a moment, they were briefly blasted with cold, sea-scented air. Then they were inside the military terminal. Flags hung from the ceiling as soldiers moved to and fro. Signs and advisory boards blinked in holographs overhead. Along the far wall, above an imposing marble desk, the words Homeland Services Maglev Commerce Monitoring and Inspection Division was spelled out in large bronze letters. Aris shuddered as Pleasance led him to a bank of elevators. Inside one, she pressed a button, the doors closed, and the elevator rose. Aris noticed it wasn't glass like most elevators he'd been in. The doors opened on what looked like a typical office. A man seated behind the desk stood to salute, and Pleasance returned it. Miller, she said. This is the colonel's brother, Aristotle Aguilar. Mr. Aguilar, the soldier said, nodding at Aris. Pleased to meet you. He nodded at Pleasance. She's free now. Good, replied Pleasance. Right this way, Mr. Aguilar. She led him inside as Miller smiled at him before returning to his work. They passed cubicles populated with more soldiers until arriving at a pair of wooden doors. Pleasance nodded at the guards on either side, knocked, then opened them. The office inside surprised him with its bright, open spaciousness. Aris expected something small and cluttered with files, decks and coffee machines, much like his own. This office had couches on either side of a large glass table, upon which sat some books and a silver urn. Behind this was a desk where a woman sat. As they entered, she turned from her deck and smiled before standing. Unlike the others he'd seen working in the offices outside, she was in combat dress. Black boots with dark blue pants tucked in and a blue tunic over that. Her sleeves were perfectly rolled up, revealing forearms tattooed with octopi that writhed ever so slowly. Her black hair was cut short to the sides and long enough to be pulled back into a bun on top. Two beads of silver jutted out just above the bridge of her nose and the soft flesh between her eyes. A thin pink scar spread for a few inches across her right cheek. She was slightly taller than him and walked like a cross between a bear and a cheetah. Tottle, she said. Until she spoke, he wasn't sure, but then it hit him that this was, in fact, his sister, Anna Maria. No one called him Tottle since childhood. It's good to see you, Tottle. Hey, Anna, Aris said. She smiled and stopped a few feet away where an uncomfortable silence seemed to stand in between them. That'll be all, Pleasance, Anna Maria said. I'll leave you to it, ma'am, said Pleasance. Mr. Aguilar? Anna Maria nodded, not taking her eyes off Aris. When the doors closed, he jumped slightly. Anna Maria laughed. Come here, she said, stepping in to hug him. Her embrace was tight but awkward. She let him go and cocked an eyebrow at him. He leaned back, mouth open, but speechless. What is it, she said. Something wrong? Uh, 
all of this, he replied, loosening his arms from her grip and waving at the room. She laughed and turned to face as he did towards windows that looked out over the mouth of New York Harbor and the Atlantic Ocean beyond. It's all so... It's nice, isn't it, she said. Not bad for a hood girl from Bay Tower 11. Sheesh, said Aris. Not bad at all. Want something to drink, she asked. Uh, sure, he said. What time is it? It's 11.30 a.m. But since it's the first time I've seen my baby brother in 15 years, I think we can celebrate properly, she said. Then walked to a dark wooden cabinet and slid open the doors to reveal several bottles and glasses. What's your pleasure? Got any whiskey? He asked. Top shelf, for sure, she said. Then poured a few fingers from a tall brown bottle. She grabbed a clear bottle from the fridge below the cabinet and returned to him with the glass. Then they sat on opposite couches from each other. What are you drinking? He asked. As she opened the bottle with a hiss of carbonation. Seltzer, she said. You celebrate with seltzer? He said. Damn. Fancy, girl. Fancy and eight years sober. Yeah, so this is how I roll. She knocked her bottle to his glass and they drank. He winced as the whiskey went down. Congratulations, he said. She nodded. This is nice stuff. Thanks, she said. Even though I don't drink anymore, I've got to have something nice on hand for visiting guests. Anyone would need a drink after what it takes to get in here, said Aris. Everyone go through the ringer like that? Only people with a certain record and former membership and organized gangs, she replied. Aris paused for a moment before dropping his eyes to the floor and sipping his whiskey. When I saw your ceramic blade show up on the door scan, I laughed so hard I snorted. Still such a punk. You know about that stuff? he asked. Kind of surprised. I mean, been a while since I saw you last. I don't know what you've been up to, but you already got intel on me. Yeah, it's been a while, she smiled, and laid a hand on his arm. Sorry, Tom. When Mom died, I had to track you down. When I did, your records came up. It's part of my job. Kinda. It's okay, he said. Weird, but okay. Hey, kid. I didn't bring you here to recite your past history to you, she said. I guess I thought Mom's death might be a good way to reconnect. Yeah, said Aris. Sure, yeah, I get that family. We should stay in touch. Aris looked into his glass and sipped for lack of anything else to say. Anna Maria frowned and smiled. Ah, shit. You're upset, she said. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to do that. If it makes you feel any better, I've had some explaining to do along the way about the Buffy's Strong Arm Club and my extensive juvie record. Eventually helped somewhat, but they sometimes think I'm still flexing bot arms, sporting my kit and cut, you know? Aris chuckled. He'd forgotten Anna Maria's affiliations back in the day. The all-female Buffies ran East Boston and parts of the harbor area near their tower complex. His mother made numerous visits over the years to retrieve Anna Maria from police stations and detention units, and Aris was often dragged along if his mother couldn't find temporary care for him. After a sobbing plea to the MBPD duty officer, they'd release his sister, who would strut out of the cell in full kit. Red leather boots, black leggings with animated blue patterns, and a blue hoodie detailed with comic animals and glyphs embroidered on the sleeves. Anna Maria's had a rabbit with X's for eyes on the arms and a shark on the hood. All of this while proudly wearing her handcuffs like borrowed jewelry until the cops undid them and pushed her out. Their mother would begin yelling at her before the release, dragging him and his sister back to the apartment. He was never sure how Anna Maria afforded those complex mechanical arms she and her fellow Buffies wore into battles. After every arrest, the cops confiscated them. Almost every crew's gear was expensive, though, and Aris knew he couldn't afford to replace his suit, shoes, or shades every time he got busted without some criminal income. But Anna Maria didn't seem to have that problem, nor illicit gig money. No matter how big or bad the bust, she'd always have a new pair a few days later. Yeah, those were crazy times, he said. 
Always wondered how you kept from getting sent out to the harbor or down to a mine farm in Hull or Georgia or Texas or someplace. Me too, she replied, and sipped from her bottle. I've been done with all that for a while, though. Got my own hauler repair shop. Got a family. Two kids. Yeah? Tell me about them, she said. Ara smiled and happily told her about Manea and the children, showing the pictures from his tablet. Anna Maria nodded, listening thoughtfully. Every so often, she looked away to the side. He knew she was either checking on a message or checking something on her HUD as it displayed over her eyes in minuscule bright flickers. They sound wonderful, she said. I'd love to meet them sometime. I don't get up to Boston much, but maybe they can come down sometime? I'll take you to a show. Go out to dinner. We'll see the sights. Tourist shit, he said. She laughed. It's not like knocking over corn feds from Iowa when they're stuffing their faces at Faneuil Hall or the North End, Anna Maria said. It's safe here. Manhattan's been a big theme park since about 2006. Yeah, that'd be nice, he said. They'd like that. So what about you? Got someone? Got a family? No family, she said. Too busy to settle down. They've stationed me all over the place. Oslo, Delhi, Nuremberg, Panama Canal Safe Zone, Bahrain, Vancouver, the Patagonia, Amazonian Defense Region, Omsk, Alaska, on and on. Got someone I've been seeing for a while now, but eh, we'll see. Jeez, said Aris, smiling as he took another sip. You were always telling Mom you'd die if you couldn't be with Jeff Konizawa forever. Oh my God, she said, leaning forward and laughing. Forgot all about him. Really, said Aris? Why not look him up and check his file? He might still be single. Anna Maria scowled, then laughed. He's probably not doing anything different now, she said. Still with the crows and all those Asian car boys. Drag racing on the wharfs, lurking around the harbor, barely staying out of jail. Unless he's already in there. Not much going on down there, said Aris. Been quiet in the old hood for 10, 15 years or so. Nothing down there but scrubs and rhino addicts. The big Battelle, said Anna Maria. You a part of that? It was your turf back in the day. Part of your crew was in it, right? Aris managed a half smile before lifting the tumbler to his lips and doing away with two centimeters of liquor. I don't know, he said. Why don't you check out your file on me? Anna Maria gave him a look that reminded him of his childhood. It was the same look she often gave when he mouthed off to her. It meant he was about to receive either a sibling pounding or a motherly swat. Their age difference meant she was a second mother to him, whether he liked it or not. Right now, that look held a little more menace than back in the day, and he wondered what the army had taught her during the last 15 years. Really, she said, after drinking without breaking eye contact. Okay. I'm 90% certain you were there. I mean, I wasn't in the States then, but reports from then indicate a particular heavy boy crew, Boston Massive, which you ran with, were involved. They took a very bad beating and pretty much disappeared after that. Uh, right after that, you began working at Holy Roller Garage full time. Aris nodded. Yeah, he said. So, uh, what do you do here that gives you access to all this background on me? What part of the army is this? We're not technically army, said Anna Maria. We're a division of Homeland Services. The most I can tell you is I'm part of the Intelligence and Field Services Division. What the hell does that mean, said Aris. You a kind of spy or something? Anna Maria gave him a patient smile, then shrugged. Great, said Aris. Some reunion. I come here so you can tell me all the shit you know about me, but can't say nothing about what you do. So what? You just call me here, rub shit in my face, give me crap for not seeing mom before she died? No, Toddle, said Anna Maria. I didn't do that. Don't call me that, he said. It's Aris now. Mr. Aguilar works too. Aris, I know you and mom weren't too close by the time you took off. Truth is, she was deep into her own downward spiral by then. Didn't have long before she was on the streets and into some bad shit. Year or two after that, she was caught up in all sorts of worse shit. 
so I can totally understand why you wouldn't be very close with her. Yeah, her maternal instinct dried up when you left, he said. Anna Maria nodded. After that, it was me and her and all those asshole boyfriends. I know how much it hurt her when I left, said Anna Maria. I was angry at her for a long time, but it was either the army or prison, and I figured army would be easier. By the time I tracked her down five years ago, it was almost too late. She'd been on the streets for a while and got addicted to rhino. Shit, said Aris. That sucks. Yes, said Anna Maria. I found her just in time. Got her into treatment, then into a nice little room at a private hospital. Homeland Services paid for all of it. Her last few years were okay, but the rhino had done its job. By the end, she was pain-free and lucid, sometimes. Look, uh, I'm sorry, said Aris. I just didn't... Don't, she said, holding up a hand. She was a crappy mom long before I left. I'm not going to guilt trip you. I owed her something for walking out without a word. The way I see it, you don't owe her anything. I just thought you should know is all. They sat in silence, across from each other, avoiding eye contact. Aris felt uncomfortable and uncertain, like when a coolant coupling wouldn't thread its socket properly. He wanted to leave, but couldn't see a way out without breaking something. So, uh, he finally said, when's the funeral? No funeral, she said, shaking her head. You and I would be the only people there anyway. So what then, said Aris. Where's her body? Anna Maria pointed at the urn on the table. Aris suddenly felt as if her mother were alive in the room when he talked about her. Oh, he said quietly. He reached out to touch the urn's rounded top. Didn't know she wanted to be cremated. She was Catholic, though, so isn't that a sin? Yeah, it is. Or was a worse one back in the day, said Anna Maria. But, boy, by the time the rhino was done with her, she wasn't easy to look at. Even if she could have spoken, I doubt she'd ask for an open casket. I'm sure whoever or whatever she meets, wherever she went, will forgive her. Aris nodded, a lump forming in his throat. Hey, she said, look at me. Aris eventually lifted his gaze to hers, his sight blurring with tears. Don't feel bad. She wasn't a great mom. She wasn't too lucid when I found her, and I doubt she would have recognized you in the last few years. And I'm not asking you to pony up for your share of the hospital care or anything. I took care of her because I wanted to. I knew you weren't too interested in it. I might have liked to reconcile, you know, before she died, said Aris. Now, though, I'm sure she'd forgive you, said Anna Maria. I don't hold it against you, Aris. Still, he said. I should have, you know, her only son and all that shit. Don't beat yourself up about it, she said. They sat in silence for a few moments. So what do we do for her, said Aris? Some kind of ceremony or... Nothing too fancy, said Anna Maria. I can get the chaplain out here if you want. Aris shrugged and grimaced. Yeah, a priest said last rites for her in the hospital. I figured you and I should be enough to send her off. Mother always liked looking out at the harbor. We can walk to the southern tip of the island and spread her ashes there. Is that legal? said Aris. Like this is a military base, so uh I'm pretty sure it'll be okay, she said laughing. Come on. She grabbed a dark blue hooded parka with a fur-lined collar from a closet. She gestured at the urn, and Aris picked it up gently. Lighter than I thought it'd be, he said. There wasn't much of her at the end. The rhino scarred her up pretty bad. All those skin growths were about half her body weight. God, he said. Are there any pictures of her or... None you want to see, she said. Best to remember her as you do. That bad? he asked. Come on. Anna Maria led him out to a different elevator than he'd arrived in. A soldier guarding unlocked the door, and then they stepped inside. After a short descent, it opened on a blank concrete room with a metal door at the far end. Anna Maria unlocked this with a swipe of her hand on a biometric reader, and then they were outside where the cold hit them with a hard blast of wind. You mind a little walk? she asked. I mean, it's cold, but... A walk is fine, said Aris. Anna Maria pulled a beret from her coat and slid it on her head with a practice move so it was perfectly angled and folded. Aris pulled out a wool cap and pulled it over his short hair with a little less grace. This way, she said. 
She led him out the door down a concrete path cleared of snow, which they followed for a while as Anna Maria pointed out various landmarks on the island. Aris was conscious of the cold, but even more conscious of the urn in his hands, more heavy with significance than mass. It grew cumbersome in the cold as his fear of dropping it and spilling the contents made him grip the lid tightly with one hand while clutching it to his chest with the other. They turned down a long path lined with bare trees next to a snow-covered parade field. Anna Maria had fallen silent after Ara stopped replying to her tour comments. Eventually, they turned left on the path and walked until coming to a dock jutting off the island. Anna Maria stopped at the end and Aris drew alongside her. Well, she said, this is as good a place as any, I think. Aris nodded, looking down at the urn. You want to say something, she said. Like what, he replied. Anna Maria nodded. Whatever comes to your heart is good, she said. They stood in silence until Anna Maria spoke again. Okay, how about this? He looked at her as she closed her eyes, then began to speak in a clear voice. May all beings be happy, content, and fulfilled. May all beings be healed and whole. May all have whatever they want and need. May all be protected from harm and free from fear. May all beings enjoy inner peace and ease. May all be awakened, liberated, and free. May there be peace in this world throughout the entire universe. Tears slid from the corner of her eyes as she finished. Then she smiled and looked at Aris. Meta prayer, she said. Learned it while I was stationed with Lhasa separatists a while back in the Tibetan autonomous zone. That was nice, he said. He looked back at the urn. I'm sorry, Mama. Wish I'd been there at the end. Goodbye. Anna Maria turned and grasped the urn with one hand. As she removed the lid, wisps of ash floated out of it like smoke. They held the urn together and tilted it until the contents began to drift out into the water. A dust trail formed and floated away from them. When it was empty, she placed the lid back on the urn. Aris watched the ash wind and drift away, slowly absorbed into the water. You cold? She finally asked. Jesus Christ, yeah, he said. She laughed. Good. Let's go get some lunch. But last one in pays. Anna Maria took off with the urn under one arm and a hand holding the lid. Aris laughed, then ran after her. The entire time, she was never less than 10 meters ahead of him. When they got back to the building, he was panting twice as hard as she was. He stopped and doubled over, not retching, but clutching a knee in his stomach. Young man like you ought to be able to run some, she said, laughing and holding up the urn. Hell, I was even holding this thing. Uh, I don't exercise much, he said. No shit. You still smoke old school? No, he said, then looked up at her. Well, yeah, a little. Jesus, she said. Maybe you can afford a new pair of lungs, but I don't know why anyone would want to go through the trouble of a replacement operation. No, you're right, said Aris. It's kind of dumb. Work's been stressful is all. Ain't it always, she said. Aris nodded. Still hungry? Yeah, he said, straightening up. Now I really am. Come on, she said, pressing a palm against the pad as the door clicked open. Anna Maria led Aris to the officer's dining hall where she goaded him into loading up on whatever he wanted. Never shy of free food, Aris did as he was told, then followed Anna Maria to a table near a window. Jesus, she said. Fried chicken and pork chops? And mashed potatoes? And yams? You are an Aguilar. Aris looked at the heaping plate atop his tray and laughed. Mom always hated that, he said, after a few forkfuls of potatoes stuffed into his mouth. Complained about the food going straight into my mouth the moment she got it home. Always that welfare issue crap, too, Anna Maria said. I don't know how you could eat all that. Food was food, he said. Ate whatever I could get. Then you met up with that girl, said Anna Maria. Her parents owned that restaurant in Dorchester. What was her name? His food stuck in his throat for a moment. Grace, said ours. Yeah, said Anna Maria. You were there all the time. If it wasn't for that booty, I'd have thought you were up in that just for the free food. Aris shook his head, cold tearing at his belly. You ever see her anymore? said Anna Maria. You ever, uh, nah, he said. We broke up after, I mean, right around the big Battelle. Bet her old man was bummed, said Anna Maria. 
lost his best customer. Not that you were ever actually paying. Oz didn't answer her, focusing instead on demolishing a second piece of fried chicken. Your wife know about your uh, social activities? She asked him. No, not really, he said. Does yours? Anna Maria laughed. I don't have a wife, actually. No husband either, she said. But shouldn't she know? I don't know. Why, he said. Anna Maria looked at him with wide eyes. It just never came up. Hey, babe, I ever tell you I used to do petty crimes and run around with the Boston Massive? Maybe not that way, she said. But Aris, come on, you gotta... What, he said. You telling me how to run my marriage? You ain't even married. What do you even know about it? True, she said, holding up a placating palm. But I do know that someone like a wife should... Aris Galera made her stop, but she matched it with one of her own, then threw up her hands. All right, she said, stabbing at her vegetables. You've been married ten years, and I'm not married, so I'll just shut it, I guess. Thank you, said Aris. For a while, they said nothing as they ate. Despite this discomfort, Aris finished everything he'd chosen, as well as four cups of coffee. Anna Maria finished her modest meal and laughed after looking at his plate. Where do you put it, she asked. You always stay so skinny, even after I see you eat half your own weight. Aris shrugged and patted his stomach. He managed a small smile for his sister. You sure ain't working it off in the gym, she said, jerking her head at the door behind him. That wasn't much of a race back there. Yeah, well, in my job, you don't necessarily need to be fast on your feet. You need other skills. Yeah, I guess you do, she said. Tell me about your shop, Mr. Aguilar. Aris gave her a basic rundown of the Holy Roller, while tactfully admitting any mention of Yuki Core 4291 or what he'd seen at the Ortiz building. Business talk seemed to keep his sister content, and she nodded when he finished. Sounds great, she said. Mama would be proud. Papa even prouder. Aris nodded. Wish I remembered him, but yeah, it's good. Speaking of which, I gotta get back home. Yeah? All right. I thought I might take my little brother out on the town, but... Next time, he said, following as she stood and cleared a tray off into a nearby garbage bin. I'll bring Manea and the kids down. Make a couple days out of it. That'd be nice, she said. She led him back to the main hall where Pleasance was waiting. Anna Maria hugged him, which he received stiffly, then she kissed his cheek. Bye, Toddle, she said. Later, Nummy, he replied. She groaned and waved, then turned back to the bank of elevators. Aris kept silent on the ride back to the mainland. When they arrived at the terminal on Manhattan's southern end, Pleasance escorted him all the way to the entrance. Thanks, he said, shaking her hand. Any time, sir, she replied. Colonel Aguilar enjoyed seeing you, I can tell. It was nice, he said. Goodbye. But he wanted to be as far away as possible so he could feel comfortable again. It wasn't the visit with his sister that bothered him. That was enjoyable, and he looked forward to seeing her again. He just didn't want anyone knowing about his next stop uptown. Aris took a long, winding route north, intent on not arousing anyone's suspicions, especially the police. Or Anna Maria. How ironic that both of them worked in different aspects of the hauler business. If only he knew exactly what she did. But he might never, and that was as it always was with his sister. So he rode north on a Manhattan subway until Grand Central Station, where he switched trains, then rode uptown before exiting at 125th Street, where he walked several blocks downtown after a little window shopping. From 96th Street, he took a complex series of buses, switching back and forth, until he finally exited at a stop in East Harlem. The immediate area near the bus stop contained ground-level shops and apartments above. As he worked his way east, foot traffic thinned out until he was the sole pedestrian in a warren of industrial buildings and warehouses. Nearby, a wormway portal joined up with the northeast corridor. Aris memorized the address days before, and only he consulted his glasses for a map twice. It was dusk when he stood at the massive doors of the second-to-last warehouse on an otherwise deserted street, terminated in a high wall protecting the area from flooding, which occurred from time to time. All the buildings around him were nondescript metal structures with little or no signage. Were it not for street signs and his own diligence, he'd never have found the right one. 
But there he was in front of large double doors locked shut with chains as thick as his arms, held by a couple of locks larger than his fists. There was no other security measures he could see, which was odd. Even before the darkness fell and the streetlights came on, he couldn't see any cameras or guards despite scanning with infrared as well as an IP sniffer. He was especially grateful he found no evidence of a heavy boy presence as he searched for insignias and graffiti in hidden places, but found nothing. At first sign of some, he'd be on the next train for Boston. So without any real plan, he looked to either side of him, then rattled the chains and locked gently with a gloved hand. It echoed deep inside the building, indicating emptiness. After no one answered his gentle knock, Ara spotted an alley beside the building where he discovered a set of rusty fire escape stairs leading up the side. After another look around him, Aris went for the stairs and climbed them almost silently. This was a weekly or even daily occurrence for him 15 years before when Aris was his all-bases B&E specialist. His fat suit made him light and nearly undetectable, but Aris actually preferred working without one. After practicing as much as he could and some on-the-job training, he became adept at entering all but the most heavily armored home or business with only his glasses, a small set of compact tools, a tablet, and a carbon weave union suit. During his stroll through Harlem, Aris purchased a new pair of glasses, which integrated nicely with his tablet and had decent night vision for Uruguayan NOCO knockoffs. He tried the door at the landing, and it gave with minimal massaging from the lockpick he carried. Breathing carefully, he opened it slowly, slipping inside, then closing the door without a sound. From a catwalk, Aris found himself looking down into a mostly empty warehouse space. He saw a workbench strewn with tools and what might have been an auto hauler lift rig when suddenly the lights came on and blinded him like the sun had exploded in his brain. Ordinary lights couldn't overpower the glass's automatic cutoff, but the lights shining now paralyzed the glasses, blinding him as if he'd suddenly stared into noonday sun. Ara swore and reeled, tearing the glasses from his eyes, but the damage was done. As he leaned against where he thought a railing was, he flew into thin air, tumbling from the catwalk. At least he landed on something somewhat soft. He figured at worst he had some bruised ribs, but nothing broken as he inhaled a mouthful of dust. Coughing and struggling to rise, he heard what sounded like something flying overhead. Then it landed hard on his back. Aris rolled then yelled as his elbow smashed into concrete. Whatever was attacking him pounced and flattened Aris. Something was chattering in his ear and tugging his wallet from his coat pocket. Aris tried to resist, but a heavy weight pinned his arms down. Knock that shit off, a woman's voice said. Let Terry do what he wants. If he doesn't get what he wants, he usually takes a finger or two instead. He's petty like that. Arnest stiffened, but allowed his wallet to be lifted. There was a skittering, and then more of a chatter in that tiny squeaking voice. The weight on him increased slightly, but Aris remained pinned to the dusty, oily ground. Well, Mr. Aguilar, said the woman, you're a long way from home and a long way from the usual tourist traps. So give me a second to call the police. Then you can personally visit the nearest precinct for an inside tour only locals usually get to see. I know all... <coughs> Aris said, then coughed as he inhaled more dust. Uh, know, know all about it. All about what then, said the woman. All of it, said Aris. Yuki Corp 4291. The guns. Hero. That AI installed on Yuki Corp 4291. The weight on him shifted slightly, but didn't let up. Finally, the woman spoke. You've got five minutes to explain yourself, she said, which means about 10 or 15 until my boss gets here. Then you'll wish I'd called the cops, because with my boss, you'll disappear for good. Promise. The weight on him shifted again as a slender booted foot kicked him. Then the pressure of a pointed heel pressed into his bruised sternum. 14 minutes, 27 seconds. Better start talking.
Well, well, well. Chapter 9, episode 9, ends with some intrigue and a mysterious woman and a mysterious thing putting our boy down. Wonder what's going on. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, stick around. Well, next time, uh, episode 10 unrolls. And, excuse me, I burped out of excitement. Episode 10 unrolls and uh, things will continue. If you like it, uh, please um, share and uh, share and reshare again. I love doing this podcast. I'd love more folks to hear it. You can always drop me a line at uh, info at charlesarterhune.com. And I uh, look forward to hearing from you. So uh, see you next Monday. That's going to be the new release date for this podcast we call Tribal Malfunctions. Namaste. But he wanted to be fu- as far. But he wanted to fuck a dog. <laughs> they proceeded through a short mother of suck. You'll be swell. You'll be great. Gonna have the whole world on a motherfucking plate.